the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show, and what we understand from uh, U.S. intelligence and uh, intelligence uh, agencies in Canada and elsewhere is it's highly likely that the Iranian military shot down that Ukrainian commercial airliner killing 176 people, whether it was accidental or purposeful uh, for some twisted reason. That's unclear, Uh, but uh, we have clarity from the D.C. press corps and so many Democrat socialists, whether they're aspiring for the White House or just aspiring to remove Trump from the White House. Remarkable responses. Nancy Pelosi kicked it off yesterday, of course, with her press briefing. We talked a little bit uh, on uh, the uh, yesterday night show uh, with uh, a description of why she was moving a war powers resolution to try to handcuff the president with respect to any further military action in uh, vis-a-vis Iran. Uh, last week, in our view, uh, the president, the administration conducted a provocative, disproportionate airstrike uh, against Iran, which endangered Americans, and did so without consulting Congress. Uh, when I was informed of this uh, uh, attack, uh, the administration took responsibility for it uh, uh, over the weekend. Uh, I said, why did you not consult with Congress? Well, we held it in closely. We held it in closely. No, you have a responsibility to consult with Congress. Uh, no, we held it close. So what, whoever close means. Mm-hmm. Um, why wouldn't they hold it closely, at least not include people who suggest that he is a traitor to the United States? You know, I guess their words don't mean anything or the president to attach meaning to them. But uh, it was disproportionate. It was provocative rather than responsive. And the phrase that she used took responsibility for the strike that was ordered, took responsibility. That's the sort of phraseology you use when you're talking about a terrorist organization that has committed a terrorist atrocity. Just remarkable. And that doesn't even get into the pronouncements about the Ukrainian airliner that was struck down in Iranian airspace by the Iranian military with Russian missiles, it appears, and somehow that's President Trump's fault. You think I'm exaggerating? The Atlantic, quote, no American paid a price for President Donald Trump's decision to kill Iran's Qasem Soleimani, but it looks like 176 other people did. Susan Hennessy, CNN national security analyst, 176 completely innocent lives killed in the crossfire of reckless escalation. Just an unbelievable tragedy. The crossfire of reckless escalation. What, what, what crossfire? Who was firing on the Iranian military? Nobody. Mayor Pete, Mannequin Pete, the red diaper baby, 
Innocent civilians are now dead because they were caught in the middle of an unnecessary and unwanted military tit-for-tat. The AP, what began with a drone attack on a top Iranian general, rippled outward until dozens of Iranian Canadians and dozens of Iranian students studying in Canada were dead. Rippled outward. Rippled outward from that strike. Trump is the proximate cause. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. So let's, I mean, there's a lot to cover here, and there's these uh, incredible edicts from the left, but let's start with Pelosi. It was uh, disproportionate. It was provocative, the strike on Soleimani. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say that Pelosi continues to... A, be a disappointment, and and be a a shocking in her recent conduct. I mean, this is someone I've met, you know, once or twice over the years. I always had respect for her as a a liberal, but as a liberal with sanity, that, that she sort of, she knew how the game was played, she was tough, she was savvy, but she she saw the big picture. She knew her history. She knew the history of politics. Of course, her father was the mayor of Baltimore. Right. So she was no, no novice. But I have to say, in the last six months, maybe even for most of 2019, she's gone crazy. I mean, she sounds like she's really unhinged. She says the most hateful things about Donald Trump. She's now accused every Republican in the Senate of covering up crimes because they won't do the uh, impeachment trial the way she wants it. And then, as you point out uh, there, all of her comments about, you know, the Soleimani targeting about and now the 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 whole crossfire uh, terminology that people are using. I mean, she has ceased to be, I think, a kind of stable, move the government forward. Yes, we can disagree, but let's work together. She has stopped being that person entirely. And, of course, I think the culmination of this was when she threw in with the impeachment people but you look, I mean, the whole, the whole way she has coddled uh, Elon Omar and the anti-Semites in her party, I mean, she has just stopped being responsible. And I think she has turned her speakership into sort of a, an, almost an anti-American platform. I mean, the criticisms of Trump have taken her to places where the party never went before. Well, uh, perhaps perhaps this is she's suffering from socialist Stockholm syndrome, right? She's identifying with the captors uh, that are the backbenchers in her caucus. Well, look, I mean, I think the numbers are important in this, that I think in many ways uh, she collapsed in the face of not so much just the backbenchers, but that the backbenchers were guiding everybody. Everybody was afraid of them. All the committee chairs, for example, have flipped. They're, they're, they're no longer kind of rocks of stability. They're all just, they've thrown in with the crazies, and, and she among them. And I, I, I'm, I'm shocked by it because, again, I don't know her, but I've always, just from a distance as a journalist covering this stuff, I've always thought that she had about her a certain sense. And as I say, yes, she was liberal, you know, San Francisco liberal. But but she has stopped 
being what I regard as sane. I, I think she's gone nuts, and, and I just think that she's lost, she's lost the control. And so instead of resisting, she's just said, well, I'm, I hate him more than you do. Let me show you. The, the, and that's the tone that we get from her every day now. And another track that is uh, being pursued concurrently is the effort to defend and recast the Obama era. Uh, with respect to Iran specifically, but but just generally. And Leon Panetta had a, a, an op-ed about uh, Iran, former CIA director. He uh, he writes, as we begin a new year, the drums of war are beating louder than ever. Really? Than ever? He uh, goes on to say both sides, United States and Iran, mistakenly assumed they could bully the other into doing what they wanted. Absent any willingness to stop and engage in serious negotiation, each side will be trapped in a cycle of punch and counterpunch, one that would likely lead to another prolonged war in the Middle East. I, I don't know how you can ascribe that description to the current situation after this week. Yeah. Look, I, I think that uh, a lot of people are missing what, uh, what the president's uh, strategy seems to be. It, it, I mean, for lack of a better description, it, it seems to me very much a containment strategy. Um, it's not about regime change, as he's explicitly said, one of, one of the reasons for the fallout with John Bolton. It, it is the president wants to negotiate. He wants to make a deal. He, you know, I think the invitation to the NATO members, the, the kind of polite scolding of the way uh, some of the European powers have helped uh, keep a keep Iran alive by buying the oil and, and by encouraging Iran to help wait to wait out Trump, that there's a way around Trump and there's a way around the Trump sanctions. Um, I think the president acted incredibly responsibly and, and was in a way quite traditional, conventional in his approach to Iran. I mean, the, the, to me, the breaking of the norm, the unconventional, was the Obama policy. We've never had a president reach out to an enemy that way, apologize, and not require them to, in effect, disarm or to change their ways. I mean, that's what's unusual. And I mean, the, the whole the whole um, JCPOA, yeah. that was unusual. What? That was a break with norm. And, and once, uh, to, to borrow from Kipling, once you have paid the Dane geld, you never get rid of the Dane. And that's what uh, Trump wanted to do. Michael Goodwin, New York Post comments. We're going to come back. I want to pick up on Pelosi again and uh, her heroic sacrifice to move impeachment. We're joined uh, with Michael Goodwin, who's New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. We'll be right back. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, yesterday, uh, when Nancy Pelosi briefed the assembled D.C. press, she was asked about, uh, you know, this weekend's big 49ers-Vikings game. She's a season ticket holder, of course, and whether or not she'd be in attendance. It would be my intention to go. I went to the one game in San Francisco. We watched all together 
of the second game in Seattle. I have, unfortunately, um, responsibilities to save our country <laughs> this weekend, so I have, have on my Democratic um, wearing that hat of uh, political leader. Uh, again, uh, such a stirring example of patriotism willing to forego that playoff game to save Western civilization. Meanwhile, over on the Senate side, Mitch McConnell signed on to a resolution we talked about earlier in the week by Josh Howley, Republican from Missouri, that would change the rules, uh, give the House 25 days to send articles of impeachment over. After that, a senator can offer a motion to dismiss with prejudice for failure by the House to prosecute such articles with a simple majority vote. McConnell also seeming to indicate to his caucus that uh, the trial will start next week. Uh, we're again joined by Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Uh, we were talking earlier, Michael, about Nancy Pelosi losing her grip on reality. Uh, <laughs> I mean, perhaps even more than going down the road to uh, lamenting the passing of Soleimani uh, is her continued obstinance with turning over the articles of impeachment. It is uh, mystifying, Dan, uh, as as many even Democrats are now beginning to say, you know, let's get on with the show. Um, she I think I think once again, Mitch McConnell does not get enough credit for his kind of resolute qualities that, you know, he's very quiet. He's somewhat self-effacing. But when you think of, of how he has handled, you know, difficult situations, Merrick Garland for one, Brett Kavanaugh for another, uh, Mitch McConnell, all these, all these uh, approvals that he's gotten from the Senate, from this very divided Senate, from Trump judges and, and even the cabinet, uh, Mitch McConnell knows what he's doing. And he, he was patient. He gave Pelosi extra time, but at some point, he, you know, I think he has taken the power back. He's basically said to her directly, you don't tell us what to do in the Senate. And then he went the next step and said, this is what we're going to do. And I, I think there's the, even the Senate, the Democrats in the Senate are going to have a very hard time uh, convincing the public that McConnell has been unfair or that he's been hasty. I think Pelosi looks like somebody who got way out ahead of her skis, too big for her britches, overplayed her hand, however you want to describe it, but somebody who who is getting taken down a peg because she, she thought she had more power than she has. Uh, and this is not to say that uh, people aren't rallying to her defense, particularly in the uh, belt inside the beltway in the press, Molly Ball writing in time about Pelosi. Maybe this is the Pelosi you were recalling that doesn't exist anymore. But Molly Ball writes, what is most striking about the moment, this moment in Pelosi's career, is that at the peak of power, she's not protecting her position, but rather using it in aggressive, even risky ways, impeaching Trump as a gamble for Pelosi. But she's always been a risk taker. From defining Chinese authorities protesting in Tiananmen Square to pushing Obamacare through the House with nary a vote to spare. But she is careful to cast impeachment not as a political gambit, but as a project to preserve the checks and balances of American democracy. I mean, that's a very uh, glowing way to describe what's happening in Pelosi, the way she described it herself. So I'm sure she appreciates Molly Ball echoing that. 
but I don't know that it fits uh, how uh, the American public is viewing this. Look, uh, the country is so divided that there will be an audience for that interpretation. Uh, the readers of, you say, I think you said Time Magazine. Yeah, Time, yeah. Uh, sure, that, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll eat that up. That's, that'll be their view of Nancy Pelosi. But I don't think history is going to view her that way. I, I think that what she has done with the partisan impeachment uh, breaks new ground. It, 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 again, it's outside the norms. And one of the fascinating things, Dan, if you, you know, sort of an overview of the three years of, of the Trump presidency or even four years, if you count the campaign, there was this sense that he's, he's breaking all the norms and he's the, the great disruptor. And that's true. But what I think uh, remains uh, un, unknown or unrecognized by many people is how the others, the reaction to Trump has been abnormal. As Bill Barr said, when you had spying on a presidential campaign by the FBI and the, the media sort of either turned a blind eye to it or cheered it on, that's breaking a big norm. That's not the media we thought we had in this country. Uh, so things like that. That, that, yes, Trump is a disruptor, but it's the way the others have behaved that I think will stand out most in history as the most curious part of this era. Well, and Nancy Pelosi is part of that. When she pushed impeachment through on a single party line vote, not getting a single Republican, that's never been done before. When she, when she put these two articles together that include no crimes, no real crimes. That's never been done before. So, and, and now to try to demand how the Senate conduct itself, that's never been done before. All of this is abnormal, but it's not treated that way. Is what, it? Well, oh, the Molly Balls. Well, right. And, and it turns out that norm is sort of a value neutral word. There can be good <laughs> norms and there can be bad norms, bad norms that should be broken and good norms that should be abided. And the left seems to have trouble making sense of that. Uh, no, not no, to... no, their rules are very clear. When Donald Trump does it, it's bad. Right. When everybody yes. else does it, it's good. It's clear. Well, and the, and the other fantasy they continue to indulge is that there's some circumstance under which you're going to have Republicans break in Moss and actually convict this president and remove him from office, despite the pronouncements from uh, Indiana Senator Mike Braun, for example, that, quote, Trump's stock value is at an all-time high, unquote. Yeah, it's it is hard to see the 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 mass defection that uh, that the left is dreaming about. Uh, but then again, I think you know certainly they've known factually that this thing was a dead letter even before they took it up. That it was not going to get two thirds support in the Senate. Um, it is it is increasingly likely that. This is very much about just damaging the president, making a statement for their own supporters, you know, throwing raw meat to the Trump haters, uh, many of whom are in Congress, of course, um, and at the same time uh, using it as a as a campaign wedge. So we I think we will see in, in many Democratic advertisements uh, in the fall uh, you know, he was impeached, the third president, yeah. you know, what, to be impeached, and uh, therefore we must get rid of him. So it'll become purely political, a purely political advertising vehicle. But, uh, Michael, uh, as, as you know, as Confucius said, 
he who throws mud loses ground, and the uh, congressional <laughs> Democrats seem to be uh, a, li- a living example of that aphorism. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we see in California a combination of litigation and adjustment in response to the uh, gig economy law, Uh, Uber announcing that it has reducing rider rewards, and it's also uh, moving, uh, changing its pricing in order to comply with the new California law that really uh, limits the ability of Uber and other such companies to employ workers uh, in a freelance dynamic. One of Uber's best features is before you commit to a ride, you're shown the full price. That's no longer true in California because of this new law. From now on, according to a press release from Uber, riders will see a price range rather than a set price before you request any non-pool ride, which is our best estimate of what the trip will cost you. Uh, So this goes to one of Uber's best comparative advantages against traditional taxis, right? You never know exactly what you're going to pay to get somewhere until you're already there. Uh, And uh, the company saying it has been forced to eliminate price protection on a route and flexible cancellations, which is another uh, comparative advantage. Uber uh, said they're working on a new benefits package for California riders, but that is a work in progress. Meanwhile, uh, trucking interests have sued and gotten the uh, California law enjoined, at least as it pertains to them. But this goes to the conversation we've had on this show before about the relative cavalier attitude that many on the left have about those whose jobs uh, depend on uh, the market economy as opposed to reshaping the market economy to be uh, government-centric i.e. the green economy. Listen to uh, one freelancer named Mary in California, who, by the way, is a Democrat. Even though she voted for the person who rammed this thing through, she is not placing personal blame. This is beyond politics for me. And I think it is for all of us. It is about our livelihood at this point. So after three decades of working hard and paying taxes in California, the people she voted for are essentially chasing her out of California too young to retire, and too old to start over. Mary is facing a real-life crisis. Seriously, guys, I've been really freaking out because that's my livelihood. I don't have any other source of income. And you know what? They say, oh, a lot of people might say, oh, well, go get another job. I'm almost 60 years old, okay? My experience has been in linguistics for over 35 years. Uh, Freelance worker in that space. I mean, it's very much... Uh, like Joe Biden saying at a town hall in New Hampshire, hey, uh, coal miners, if they can go down 3,000 feet, then they can learn to code. How does that attitude impact uh, the 2020 election? It's a good piece at thehill.com by Bill Schneider about the Democrats' conundrum. Are they trying to launch a movement or are they trying to build a winning coalition for November? Bill Schneider is a professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. 
and author of Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. Professor Schneider, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. Well, what about uh, this uh, matter of, uh, you know, Mary in California, the freelance worker and laws like the law that was passed by uh, California Democrats signed by Newsom? Uh, and how that uh, goes to the question of that the Democrat Party is trying to answer coalition or movement? Well, uh, there are, have always been elements, and now they've become more powerful in the Democratic Party that want the Democratic Party to be a movement of the left. The most prominent figure in, in that respect is Bernie Sanders, who calls himself a socialist and isn't even registered as a Democrat. Um, both parties have uh, become more consistent. Uh, in recent decades, the Republicans are really a concert. Well, they were a conservative movement, and now they've become a Trump movement. And they don't really to- have great tolerance for people who differ with Donald Trump. Well, the the Democrats we're finding out in this campaign also have many of them the mentality of a movement. They don't welcome the support of people who differ with them on what they consider to be important issues. Uh, I want to get a bit more of a distillation, as you provide in your piece in The Hill, about coalition versus movement uh, when we come back. And and also address this this, seeming paradox. Uh, I want your vote, but I'm not interested in what animates your vote. And, and, you know, again, Republicans have been guilty of this, too. But it seems that uh, that onus is more decidedly on the left uh, as we look at ahead in 2020 than the right. But I. I want to check uh, your opinion on this. We're talking to Bill Schneider. He's a professor at the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. His book, Standoff, and we'll be right back with more Bill Schneider. All out to be seen. I'm your recent acquisition. Time to celebrate me. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Bill Schneider, professor at George Mason University, author of the book Standoff How America Became Ungovernable. There was a piece, uh, Bill, at National Post uh, by uh, op ed writer Kelly McParlin. This is up in Canada. And uh, she's a woman of the left. And she asked, when did progressives stop caring about ordinary folks problems? She writes, it's as if liberals have lost interest in helping ordinary people with everyday problems and decided to save the world instead. Left wingers seem increasingly blind to the chasm between the ideals they embrace and the practical realities so many others deal with. Uh, does this lament go to this uh, question of coalition versus movement that you're getting at yeah it does i think and what's happened is that the democrats have become more and more the party of well-educated americans i call it the diploma divide Mm. Uh, you find you see it in every poll americans particularly white americans with a college degree are far more liberal and democratic than white Americans who don't hold a college degree. The difference by education is becoming larger and larger, particularly with Donald Trump as president. And there are a lot of working class people, even some minorities, some poor people, who don't find that Democratic Party very congenial. 
I call those Democrats NPR Democrats. That's their favorite medium. Um, they don't listen to talk radio, which is very conservative, but their favorite radio shows are all on NPR, All Things Considered. Rush Limbaugh does not consider all things. He considers what he damn well wants to consider. <laughs> That's a big difference. Uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, speaking to your point about, about minorities, too, and the importance of, uh, for example, uh, black Americans as part of the, a Democrat majority coalition, if it's going to have one. Ibram Kendi writes about the other swing voter in a piece in The Atlantic, and he's talking really about black voters who didn't show up for Hillary Clinton the way they did Barack Obama. Uh, she may have gotten a similar percentage, but it was a similar percentage of a much smaller number. And that's a swing vote, too, that's not located in a particular state. It's an attitude uh, around the country, but but certainly important in, in, in swing states as well. And so, you know, how do you take that attitude of being only concerned with the elites and being a movement and not address some of the core quality of life issues that a key constituency you have to have to win is demanding. Well, the Democrats uh, under Franklin Roosevelt and since the 1930s have been a party that has been concerned with economic justice. Uh, and that concern is not as powerful now, or it's different now from what it was then. Uh, now it tends to take the form of support for a wealth tax, which is something we've never really had in the United States. Uh, it's a, it, it's a, basically a left-wing agenda. Um, and it leaves a lot of working people out. They're not comfortable in the Republican Party, which is a, has always been the party of the rich and the boardroom, but now they're not too comfortable with the Democratic Party, which is the, coll- the party of, what, what shall I say, college professors like me. <laughs> uh, but that is one reason why, not, uh, that, why so many suburban voters have been leaving the Republican Party, places like Orange County, California, and uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, there's barely any Republicans left in those places because they feel uh, excluded uh, by the Republican Party of Donald Trump. They don't like being governed by a president who advertises his lack of understanding, his ignorance on a lot of issues. Well, so uh, so here's the thing, uh, the um, the the attitudes that you're describing. It, do you think that the, what what's happening is a political realignment? Or is it just really a matter of a Trump phenomenon for as long as he's on the national scene for the two parties? Well, as long as Trump, Trump is going to be around for a while. Look, he says he's going to be president maybe for 10 years. I don't know if he was joking or not. There's (laughs) one big question about the election this year. Namely, if he loses by any kind of uh, close margin, is he going to leave office? We, We can't really be sure. I remember covering an election in England in 1974. That's how old I am. Uh, and Ted Heath, who was the conservative prime minister, lost the election. He lost his majority, but no other party could claim a majority. So he didn't leave. Uh, he didn't leave the prime minister's office. There was a labor newspaper, a tabloid, the Daily Mirror, that had a huge headline the day after the election with a picture of the prime minister on it. And the, the, the headline was, for the love of God, go. We're likely to see that headline in some American newspapers this November. Well, um, uh, that's assuming Trump loses. But uh, but let's let's just set that aside for a moment. I I just go back to the question of is the Republican Party going to be the party of uh, the party uh, of Trump that uh, took down the blue wall in in in, in 2016 or is a realignment happening? And the Democrat Party, the new formal party of the rich and the elites and the diploma uh, holders, as you say, 
uh, is that is that going to stick after Trump, whenever that may be? Uh, we really don't can't say for certain, but we know that Trump, for the moment, has changed the contours of the Republican Party. He's made a lot of traditional Republicans and conservatives unhappy, particularly with his foreign policy, which has a lot of isolationism in it. And I think that could last for quite some time. Uh, Trump is not going away, and certainly not going away very easily. And now his son, Donald Trump Jr., says he may run for office one day to carry the Trump banner. So it's, it's very hard to predict, but there has been a realignment in the country, and it's mostly by education. Uh, well-educated people voting Democratic, poorly educated people moving into the Republican Party, and they used to be Democrats, but they aren't anymore. It, uh, you know, it's always suggested that people vote their pocketbooks, but in good economic times, sometimes they may consider other issues that are, have, are more psychic in value. And I wonder if you think that cultural issues will play a more pronounced role if the economy continues to, to uh, perform fairly well uh, in November. I think that's a sensible prediction. Cultural issues are always there. Americans, people all over the world, as far as I can tell, uh, are driven by two kinds of concerns uh, when they vote. One is interests and the other is values. And they're often in conflict. There was a book written after the 2004 election, which uh, uh, President Bush was reelected in, uh, and the book was called "What's the Matter with Kansas?" Yeah, and the Thomas Frank was that yeah. Kansas is filled with working class. Tom Frank, Kansas is filled with white working class voters who have liberal economic interests and used to be pretty radical and populist in the early 20th century, and now they're bedrock conservative. What drives their conservatism? Their values, particularly religious values. Jewish voters have conservative interests, not just economically, but also on Israel, but yet they vote overwhelmingly Democratic because they have liberal cultural values. Those liberal and conservative cultural values have been around since the 1960s when they first emerged, and they're actually growing stronger, not weaker. He is Bill Schneider, professor at the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, author of the book Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. Bill, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, December jobs number is in, 145,000 jobs, a little bit below street estimates. But uh, nonetheless, the economy continues to hum along. Again, 3.5% unemployment, so it's full employment. 7 million unfilled jobs, it's almost more than full employment. Uh, 7 million unfilled jobs, very tight labor market. And uh, this has uh, fast food restaurants looking to manufacturers as well, but fast food restaurants, this is interesting, looking to increase, significantly increase salaries for those individuals running their franchises in order to attract and keep talent. This is the good news uh, for middle-income families, middle-income workers. Taco Bell uh, announced this week they're going to test, start to test pay managers $100,000 a year $100,000 a year at some company on locations in the Northeast and Midwest starting later this year. They don't know exactly how many managers at its 450 company-owned stores will get the $100,000 salaries or how long it will offer the higher salaries. 
But this is a significant bump from salaries for general managers right now that range between 50 and 80 grand. Yokiero Taco Bell. And, and incredibly, I didn't realize this, California-based uh, In-N-Out Burger has been paying managers of its stores hundred grand and above for at least the past decade, according to its VP of Operations. In fact, the average salary for one of its restaurant managers now Average salary for a restaurant manager at In-N-Out Burger, $160,000. Uh, forget that Uber side hustle. Uh, take uh, application over at uh, uh, the fast food joints. But the burger flipper job that was ridiculed and is always ridiculed by the left, that's called entry level. So that potentially, if you want, you can work your way into management and uh, – Six-figure salary these days at places like Taco Bell, and apparently these days have been these days for a while at In-N-Out Burger. Now, it's not to say that there aren't uh, potential pitfalls. I mean, you have Michael Douglas get fired from his job at a defense contractor, and you can have him show up at your Whammy Burger location and shoot up the joint. But nonetheless, uh, it is sort of a remarkable tribute to how strong the American economy is. It's not to say there aren't structural concerns about quantitative easing, and uh, a, uh, a stock market on a bit of a sugar high and $23 trillion in debt and $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. But again, 7 million unfilled jobs and rising incomes, middle income families incomes under President Trump up $5,000 in real terms. So rising incomes, the uh, increase in wages occurring faster at the lower, lower socioeconomic levels than the higher so this is good news all around, and now you have, even in the service sector, in the fast food sector, you have people competing for managerial talent and, and, and willing to pay to attract it and retain it. That's good news in advance of November of 2020. This is the Dan Project. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, this is the segment on the Dan Prof Show where we do a little bit of a review of what's happening on college campuses. As uh, Andrew Sullivan wrote in New York Magazine last year, we're all on one big college campus now. Uh, so, so much of culture emanates from academia, the elite, which is, uh, uh, which is so it's relevant. And uh, interesting piece uh, out this week, a study actually by... Researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis uh, looking at whether or not the college wealth premium is still in force, the premium that college graduates earn over the course of their working career as compared to their peers without a college degree. As a general point, college graduates earn more and are worth more, net worth more than people without college degrees. But that's changing. The wealth premium actually has collapsed precipitously over the last 50 years. And they cite a number of reasons. You probably figure them out. 
asset prices, older generations were able to buy houses and stocks when prices were low and saw the value of those assets rise, uh, higher housing prices, uh, inability to buy their way into the stock market has changed that for more recent generations. Now, 15% of the country owns 85% of the stock uh, equities. Second factor, uh, Wall Street's uh, financial engineering, they point to. Younger folks come of age during an era of consumer debt. Banks are more freewheeling when it comes to loading up customers with credit cards, car loans, and so on. Obviously, that gets subtracted from your net worth. Finally, uh, another point they make is the cost of college and graduate school itself, which there's been a lot of attention devoted to. Um, But I would add something else, and that is the quality of the instruction and intellectual development on college campuses. And by the way, I speak as somebody who is not an opponent of academia. I'm actually a proponent of traditional humanities-based education. That's what I earned at Northwestern, and I went on to get a law degree. So I'm hardly... Uh, standing in opposition to higher education. The question is not whether people should be educated and lifelong learners and acquire uh, degrees, advanced degrees. The question is the worth of them based on what's happening on college campus. And uh, let me give you two examples. And this, of course, is about uh, uh, this, 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 what's, these two stories are reflected in our larger culture. But perhaps if we could address them at the college campus, start changing at the college campus, and frankly, at the K-12 through level, then maybe we can start making our culture less censorious and accusatory and uh, mob-like. The first story is Dartmouth University, Ivy League. And it's the story of David Bucci, who committed suicide at the age of 50. David Bucci killed himself after Dartmouth College refused to let him clear his name against allegations. He had looked the other way when female students brought sexual harassment allegations to him, not against him, to him as department chair. Last year, the college settled a $70 million class action lawsuit for a reported $14 million. But they wouldn't do the one thing that David Bucci had hoped they would do, a statement proclaiming his innocence, defending him. Women's complaint was filed in November of 2018, made national headlines. Dartmouth's rebuttal was filed three months later in January of 2019 and got no notice. Bucci, who is a memory researcher, took over the psychological and sciences department in 2015, said the students who had complained to him and his colleague, a female, uh, Thalia, Whitley, Thalia Wheatley, the director of graduate studies, who's also named in the lawsuit, the students who had complained to him did not mention some of their gravest allegations, such as rape, and did not name the professors at first. In fact, uh, Wheatley said the students had asked to wait to be transferred until their evaluations were in, so the accused professors could not retaliate against them as it pertained to their grades. Despite that request, both Wheatley and Bucci immediately went to the Title IX office to register their complaints. Uh, Again, uh, Bucci named 31 times in a 72-page legal complaint 
and was never personally accused of assaulting anybody, just accused of looking the other way. Bucci, it turns out, had a history of depression, and the toll of keeping quiet as his name got dragged through the mud brought it roaring back. By the time his faculty dean rose to his defense, he was on the verge of being hospitalized for depression and treated with electroconvulsive therapy. And he killed himself. Three of his accusers showed up to his memorial reception, according to several people who also attended. Dartmouth's notice of Bucci's passing at the age of 50 doesn't mention his suicide. Or, of course, the college's role in it. In fact, uh, someone unfamiliar with what happened to him in the months and days leading up to his suicide would have no clue that this uh, lawsuit that ostensibly smeared him and a college that refused to let him defend himself publicly as part of a legal strategy, but then also didn't defend him publicly even after the settlement, had any part to play. I mean, there is no more devastating moniker that can be applied to a person these days than as a predator in the Me Too era. And despite no accusations directly uh, to him directly and uh, the record that appears not to be in dispute about what Bucci and uh, another administrator did once the allegations were brought to them, uh, they were treated the same way that we're uh, treating Harvey Weinstein. The lack of distinction between these cases. Professor's dead. Another case on a college campus, Babson College. It's a private college. Uh, this uh, recently, uh, after President Trump's threat to target 52 Iranian sites, including cultural sites, which was blown out of proportion by the D.C. press corps, of course, but a professor at Babson College tweeted in retaliation to what Trump had said. The uh, Iranian Ayatollah should tweet a list of 52 sites of beloved American cultural heritage that he would bomb. Um, Mall of America, question mark. Kardashian residence, question mark. Uh, that tweet drew the attention of a local gossip blog, which published screenshots of this professor. His name is Sheen Fancy. This professor's uh, tweet, uh, and it uh, prompted critics of the tweet. There's every reason to be critical to uh, essentially dox the college and uh, call for this professor's termination. And that happened. He was fired. Uh, FIRE, which is a, a free speech organization, uh, rallied to his defense. It's stra- and, and by the way, this is really a conservative bent. Mostly they spend time defending conservatives who are being targeted for elimination on college campuses for expressing themselves with for offering unpopular opinions, uh, legitimate opinions that just happen to be unpopular on a college campus dominated by leftists. So there's some consistency here, thankfully. It's strange credulity, they argue, to read his tweet as sincerely advocating violence. I mean, this is figurative and hyperbolic language. Uh, Fire fired off a letter to Babson College president suggesting that um, the statement does not run afoul of First Amendment protections, clearly, 
It doesn't commit fancy to any action, uh, and it doesn't incite anything, reasonably incite anything. So, again, Babson College is a private institution. It's not bound by the First Amendment. But it does promise its faculty and students that Babson College will respect their freedom of expression. And so in this case, even though I don't like his tweet and I don't appreciate it and I don't think it was funny, I also don't think it should be a terminable offense. And I don't want a culture that that gets into this business of trying to jackpot everybody and end them, the so-called cancel culture. You say something I don't like and I'm going over every after everything you have. And I also don't like institutions that don't allow people to defend themselves. That's when people get railroaded. And in some cases... When people turn on themselves in the face of it, sad. This is the Dan Prof Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The reaction from Beltway Media Flax to the news that it's highly likely that uh, that Ukrainian airliner was downed by the Iranian government, the Iranian military. Uh, whether it was an accident or whether it was purposeful is an imponderable at the moment. Susan Hennessy, she's a, a national security analyst for CNN. 176 completely innocent lives killed in the crossfire of reckless escalation. Just an unbelievable tragedy. The, the crossfire of reckless escalation. What, what, what was the crossfire here? It appears, it appears that a missile, I mean, I know Iranian authorities dispute this, but it appears that a missile took down, missiles took down this airliner. What, was there a response fire that we're unaware of? The crossfire? AP, the Associated Press. What began with the drone attack on a top Iranian general rippled outward until dozens of Iranian Canada, uh, Canadians and dozens of Iranian students studying in Canada were dead. So the proximate cause of the Ukrainian airliner that was down is Donald Trump taking out a terrorist general responsible for, according to the State Department, more than 600 U.S. soldiers' deaths, not to mention thousands of Iraqi soldiers and civilians. Everybody conceding he was a bad guy, but you know who's worse? Trump. That's essentially what they're saying, starting with the reaction to the order on Soleimani. Listen to Chris Matthews. Let me ask you about what we should have done. I go back to the congressman on this. You know, when some people die, we, you know... Um, you don't know what the impact's going to be. When Princess Diana died, for example, there was a huge emotional outpouring. Uh, these kinds of, Elvis Presley in our culture. It turns out that this general he killed was a beloved hero of the Iranian people to the point where look at the people we've got pictures of now. These enormous crowds coming out. There's no American emotion in this case, but there's a hell of a lot of emotion on the other side. Should our leaders know what they're doing when they kill somebody? Princess Di, uh, yeah, and then I remember the royal family ordered a strike in all the British tabloids right after her death with Dodi Fayyad. Not to mention the premise that he's a beloved general, a revered general, the Washington Post headline, just like al-Baghdadi was an austere religious scholar. Just remarkable. The worst person in the world, perhaps in American history, is Donald Trump. 
And no matter how bad you are, we need to maintain our focus on him because he is the greatest threat humanity's ever faced. They might as well just say that because that's what they're intimating. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time during the week. And also his new book, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett Baer, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, looks like we've avoided World War III for the moment. Yeah, I think yet to know what we don't know about uh, Shia militias and Hezbollah and what they could do. But yeah, the off-ramp was there. It seems like the Iranians are taking it. And they've if you're an Iranian official, at the senior levels especially, you've had a bad week. You've lost your top military guy and the guy that was steering all the terrorist activity throughout the Middle East. You, uh, in a show of what you said was force, kind of had a fireworks display mm. into Iraq. And then it looks like you accidentally, we don't know that definitively, but accidentally shot down a commercial airliner with your Russian surface-to-air missiles that are designed to take out jets coming in from, you know, opposing opposing forces. I think that's a bad week. I think all of this stuff you're talking about, you're right. I mean, it is... I know people at home can see it. Remember, this whole thing started with the killing of an American contractor, a guy that was working uh, with U.S. forces, got a family in Texas, and he was killed by a Shia militia, Iran. We struck back. Then there was the protest on the embassy that was an effort to close it down at one point. And then the administration says this target of opportunity comes up with the, the guy that's causing the most trouble in the Middle East and has been for years, Soleimani. Uh, Gina Haspel told officials that the world is better off and the U.S. is better off and safer with Soleimani gone. Turning uh, to impeachment, uh, Nancy Pelosi saying yesterday that uh, one in a great act of sacrifice, she's not going to go to the 49ers Vikings playoff game this weekend because she's saving the world. Um, But in addition to that, she'll turn over those articles of impeachment when she's darn good and ready, except it'll probably be soon. She's feeling the pressure to move this along, especially with McConnell saying we're going to move this along next week. Yeah, I think the pressure is really coming from Democratic circles, much more vocal on the Senate side that is not under the thumb of uh, Speaker Pelosi. It was really humorous to see the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, yesterday come out on CNN and say, really, we need to move this over to the Senate. And then moments later, as if a barrage had hit his door, he tweets out, I misspoke. Uh, Speaker Pelosi can do what she wants. (laughs) You know, so it was very funny to see. It happened a couple of times in the House. The Senate's much more vocal, and and you have eight Democratic senators saying, you know, let's move this along. And I know uh, much of the uh, uh, big government media was celebrating the chiding the White House took from Senators Mike Lee and Rand Paul after their briefing, the Senate briefing on the Iranian strike of Soleimani on Wednesday. And, And there's even a piece in Bloomberg suggesting Mike Lee could vote to convict and remove the president from office. You know, still this sort of uh, (laughs) fantasy scenario of how he's actually going to be convicted, except Mike Lee went on your show and said something very different than what uh, leftist op-ed writers are suggesting. Exactly. Opposite said on impeachment said it's ridiculous. It shouldn't even be over here. And no, I vote. and, And yes, I will vote to dismiss right away. Uh, that's a little different than voting to convict. And then his <laughs> yeah. his problem is not with the intelligence. Uh, and in fact, he was behind the strike on Soleimani. That was lost in the translation and a lot of the coverage. 
he's a constitutionalist and believes that Congress needs to be in the loop uh, and a active partner in decisions that involve the possibility of going to war. And so is Rand Paul. He's a little bit more you know, skeptical about in, the intelligence. But but Lee, for example, said Soleimani should have been taken out. So, yes, this all often happens. And when when a Republican raises his hand and says, I have a problem with something, suddenly they are celebrating. Uh, I wanted to uh, get your take on where the Democrats uh, and Democrat socialist field for president stands. Uh, interesting op-eds this week with respect to Bernie Sanders. Uh, everyone from Jason Riley, who is op-ed writer or an editorial board member of the Wall Street Journal, to Matt Iglesias over at Vox saying, well, Iglesias cheerleading Bernie Sanders. He's the best candidate. He's the best chance we have to beat Trump. Jason Riley saying, don't underestimate Bernie Sanders. He could very well be the nominee. I think it's unlikely he could be president. I don't want him to be president. But uh, the D.C. press corps shouldn't be dismissing him. He's got staying power, as proven by the money he's raised and, frankly, just how he's come back, not just politically, but from a heart attack. I mean, listen, the guy had a heart attack. The last candidate to have any health problems on the trail was Bradley, who had that and then fell off. Yeah. Bernie Sanders not only kicked it in high gear, but is tied for the lead, according to recent polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, could could very well win both of those. And he has the most money exponentially of the Democratic candidates. And he's got also got a ground game. So I think it's right to not dismiss Bernie Sanders as a possible Democratic nominee. Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time weekdays. The book, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. See you guys. Have a good weekend. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Prof show. I'm uh, located in Chicago. That's where I live. And interesting uh, data coming out in advance of the 2020 census about uh, domestic migration. We talked a little bit about it, a journal opining on the blue state migration. In other words, people migrating away from blue states. In fact, when it comes to New York, California and my home state of Illinois, we haven't seen an exodus like this since the Israelites fled Egypt. It's massive. It's been going on for a decade in Illinois, leading the pack in out-migration. U-Haul study, number one in the country, people renting U-Hauls to go to, Florida. Number one in the country, people renting U-Hauls to go from, Illinois. And California, right behind it. Uh, Justin Fox, who is a uh, contributor, Bloomberg opinion columnist, covering business. Also, the editorial director was the editorial director of the Harvard Business Review. Uh, he has a good piece that uh, appeared in, in uh, one of our local business publications in Chicago, Crane Chicago Business, about uh, just exactly where Californians and New Yorkers and Illinoisans fleeing their respective states are moving. And uh, a little bit of a discussion of 
some of the underlying reasons that this outmigration is happening. Perhaps it's not just tax policy. Perhaps it's predominantly tax policy. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Justin Fox. Justin, thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be on air. So um, it's interesting to note, uh, let's just start with California. Uh, the uh, state that uh, the most Californians have fled California for, Texas. So they're not fleeing California to Texas for the weather, ostensibly. Definitely there, not. There has to be something else going on. So as you look at these three states in particular, and you provide all this IRS data, which is excellent, uh, what are some of your top-line takeaways in terms of w- what's prompting the moves? Well, I mean, in California, it's really remarkable. Basically, all of the the people leaving at least for states that lots of people are going to, like Texas and Nevada, on average make a lot less money than the people who are staying. Um, you know, there are a couple states, like people who are moving from California to Wyoming, live, live in Jackson Hole or something. There aren't very many of them, but they make a lot of money. But um, especially people going to Arizona and and Nevada and Oregon, so just over the border. Um, there, it, it's not the rich people who are leaving, for the most part. It's sort of middle class and 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 below. Well, and in, in point of fact, though, this still goes to the question of tax policy, right? It's the I can't afford to be here anymore. As some of these uh, states, these big blue states, uh, start looking at a statewide level, what San Francisco looks yeah. like at a local level, which is a lot of uber wealthy people insulated from terrible public policy the beneficiaries of transfer payments on the lower end and not much in between. Yeah, but I, I just think in the end it's it's housing costs totally dwarf tax differentials. Um, but when whereas, you but, but when you just I mean just talking it as an Illinois when you talk California at least. Well, right. So okay, so California is a little bit different because they have a hard cap on property taxes when in Illinois uh housing costs is is significant and and frankly the uh the the the, ter- the terrible housing market here is in large measure driven by the highest property taxes in the nation, right? So I mean, it's just a tr- yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Illinois has you know long term uh, financial problems that it's trying to <laughs> tax its way out of, and it just gets hard to do that. I, I mean, with Illinois, it, it's a much more of a mix. A lot of the people leaving Illinois are higher incomes, especially the ones going to Florida, and you know a lot of that is it's warmer in Florida and people retire. And if they're affluent enough to leave, they leave and go to Florida. So I I would imagine some of that's been going on for a long time, but it's definitely been, you know, the differential has been exacerbated by Illinois' pension problems in recent years. And then the the change in the tax code at the end of 2017 um, that makes it, you, you can't deduct most of those taxes from your federal taxes. It does. That doesn't really show up in the data yet, but you've got to figure that's going to be a, have a big impact going forward. Yeah, well, I also want to talk. Uh, we've got to take a break, but I want to talk about this too because this is an underappreciated aspect of it. So the uh, the flight away from particular states like Illinois, New York, California, on the services side, and something that uh, the founder of Jimmy John's, Jimmy John Leitude, uh, said to me before he left. Illinois, where he founded Jimmy John's for Florida. We're talking to Justin Fox, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering business, uh, former editorial director of the Harvard Business Review. We'll be right back with him.
fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're talking to Justin Fox, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering business, also the former editorial director of the Harvard Business Review, talking about uh, which is a topic of a lot of conversation because there's a lot of movement around the country, within the country, and particularly out migration from New York, California, uh, and Illinois. I mean, throw in New Jersey and West Virginia, too. But uh, and it's uh, it, there's a variety of reasons in Illinois, speaking as an Illinoisan. Some survey research has been done on this. And uh, number one, this is from the uh, public, uh, the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Number one, half of the population in Illinois wants to leave, which is by far the largest percentage of any state in the nation. It's remarkable. And the number one reason they cite is tax policy but, uh, and, and the level of taxation. But it's a, a little bit more complicated than that, too. And it sort of goes to some of the nuance in your piece in Cranes, Justin which is one of the things that people say and what Jimmy John Leotude, the founder of Jimmy John Sandwich Shop, said to me before he left Illinois for Florida, relocating his corporate headquarters there, was, you know what? I've been successful in life. I'm, I'm happy to pay taxes. Not a big deal. The thing that really upsets me about Illinois is the taxes do not go to the services that the politicians say they're going to go. So, uh, for example, Illinois, highest state and local tax burden in the nation combined and yet one of the worst service providers to families who have a family member with developmental disabilities. And so what you actually have is sort of tax and spend policy uh, when the resources are not directed as advertised, driving people to other states to say, if I'm going to pay taxes and particularly higher taxes, then at least I want services that I either support because it's the right thing to do or I support because you know, I have a family member who relies on state services through no fault of their own, and that there's not enough of that part of the discussion in this larger dialogue. Yeah, you're you're not paying for current services. You're paying for the retirement of people who delivered services 20 years ago, and that's just tough for a state to manage, and it's tough for the taxpayers there. And, and Illinois is just not a state that overall has been growing much. I mean, clearly central Chicago is booming, but that's about it. Um, whereas, I mean, it's interesting because California, especially Northern California, is still creating jobs like crazy. But it's like unless you've got one of the really high paying ones, you can't actually afford to live anywhere near it. So Illinois is definitely a different situation. It doesn't have the crazy real estate prices for the most part. And, and it's it, it's much more straightforward policy and taxes. There was an interesting editorial in the Chicago Tribune, and this goes for all three of the states that we're talking about uh, uh, primarily. Uh, thanks to the Illinois exodus, uh, the population shrinks. So does the cloud in Washington. Again, we're in a census year. And so the projection is that uh, Texas and Florida are going to pick up at least a couple seats each. And uh, places like California and Illinois, California for the first time is going to lose a, at least a seat. And Illinois may lose two. New York going to lose a seat. So the, the shifting of political clout, too, as it pertains to D.C., is something you would think the political classes in those states would contemplate. 
Yeah, although, I mean, the other thing that's going on is within states like Texas and Florida, is population is shifting to the large metropolitan areas and away from rural areas. So the, I think the political implications of all of it are less clear than it seems like. Um, but I, I just clearly it's a sign of, you know, it, I think it's fine that people from cold places want to retire somewhere warmer, and that's going to be expected, and that's always going to affect the numbers for New York and, and Illinois. But clearly it's a sign that something's not working well when you have that big and net out-migration. Right. I mean, you're talking about uh, in, yeah, Florida's number one for us, Texas number two for Illinois in terms of where people are moving. But then there's Indiana. So they're not <laughs> retiring to Indiana for weather, just like Californians aren't going to Texas for the weather. Right. Although, I mean, the people who are from Illinois who are moving to Indiana, for the most part, have pretty low incomes. So it's more about sort of, I guess, getting to, I would bet it's people moving from Chicago to suburbs in Indiana. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's part of it. But, there, but, but there's also, I mean, I just go back to the taxation piece. I can get a lot more house for the price in Indiana because they have a 1% uh, as a hard cap on property taxes as a percentage of home value the same way California does because of a referendum 35 years ago. And so, you know, I, that that makes a lot more sense to me than seeing my home equity eaten away by property tax spikes. Right. I mean, in California, that cap applies to mainly to people who've been there for a long time. Right. People who bought their houses recently pay a ton in property taxes there, but it's it's a strange system they have. Well, <laughs> so the 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 uh, you know sort of at least half governance by popular referendum, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. creates create some interesting outcomes. Um, as uh, you know, I mean, if you're but but here I go just go back to like sort of simple first principles. If you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, I don't want to overstate the case. These are still the three states we're talking about are still massive states with huge swaths of the American population. But, and California actually grew a lot over the past 10 years because of immigration babies and because of immigration. Yeah, um, but although it's definitely slowing down. But but I mean, but in terms of, you know, thinking about uh, uh, capital investments, business location and expansion, there was a, uh, a substantial player in the commercial real estate market who uh, opined this week in Chicago that his institutional investors have basically redlined Chicago in terms of commercial investment. Um, so, you know, the, there are, it's not just some of these numbers and say, oh, those numbers are really bad. What are we going to do about it? It's also what those numbers indicate in terms of structural problems that are going to deliver real punishment, particularly if and when we have our next economic downturn. Right. And, and, yeah. Um, and uh, the flip side, though, you know, as a country is that it's kind of healthy. Like I, I was just thinking about how like in I, I, I want to look at these numbers now for like France or, or the United Kingdom. I'm guessing people are still flocking to Paris and London, um, driving the prices up even more. And and in the U.S. at a certain point, people can go. There are other big cities with lots of jobs where you can go. Yeah. And that's less the case in other countries. It's the 50 laboratories of democracy. And uh, here I am stuck in the meth lab of those 50 labs. Uh, Justin Fox, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering business, former editorial director of Harvard Business Review. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was freezing rain in the face of a hurricane west wind.
supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m. a main hatchway gave in, he said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Last hour, I spoke about the uh, $100,000 positions to manage Taco Bell company stores. Uh, I want to make sure everybody gets uh, employed and maybe even with a side hustle. So uh, here's another opportunity that you may want to avail yourself of. Uh, This is uh, Oscar Mayer, Wienermobile driver, or also known as the Hot Doggers, Chicago-based Oscar Mayer is now officially accepting applications for its 2020 class of hot doggers to drive the highways and byways of the United States and serve as a brand spokesman for Oscar Mayer. My baloney has a first name. It's O-S-C-A-R. My baloney has a second name. It's M-A-Y-E-R. I like to eat it every day. And if you ask me why, I'll say because Oscar Mayer has a way with B-O-L-O-G-N-A. Tell me that that hasn't stuck with you since you heard it as a kid, if you did like me. Apparently it has. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, but look, this is a, a gr- another ground floor opportunity. Like we were talking about, you get a burger flipper job, and all of a sudden you're making 160 grand at In-N-Out Burger as a store manager. Uh, Oscar Mayer driver, Wienermobile driver, you become Speaker of the House. Remember Paul Ryan? Paul Ryan drove the Wienermobile for a while, and that's not a metaphor. Uh, this is interesting how it works here. Uh, and just to give you a sense of how competitive it is, that tight Trump job market, it will hire, Oscar Meyer says, going to hire 12 hot doggers for one year full-time positions. Uh, last year, it's 32nd class. They received more than 7,000 applications for the 12 positions. Oscar Meyer claims it's easier to get into an Ivy League university than to get into Oscar Meyer's brand, uh, you know, hot doggers class. How about it? Now, uh, here's how it uh, works. Uh, candidates who uh, cut the mustard uh, have to go to hot dog high. Don't get salty. No joke. You have to go to hot dog high, get a little training. If you relish the opportunity, then it's uh, not, too much, not too much to ask. Hot dog high is where hot doggers will learn to become an expert on hot dog puns. And as you can see, I'm a former instructor at hot dog high, as well as to actually drive the Wienermobile. Doesn't seem like that would handle terribly well on on uh, you know, on uh, highways and byways of America, particularly sharp turns. But uh, if uh, Paul Ryan could manage it, I suppose with a proper training, anybody could. Uh, you know, but you you go to this hot dog high, you get trained, you catch up on the policies and procedures of Oscar Mayer. Uh, probably get peppered with questions. But look, if you got a little lady at home with a bun in the oven, this could be a good job for a year as you uh, make your way. I know, so terrible. This is the Damp Rock Show.
from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. Trump was making his way to Toledo, Ohio for a rally. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was uh, holding forth before the assembled press. And, uh, you know, she's been annoyed, but she answered her questions anyway. How dare you question her? She will turn over those impeachment articles when she's darn good and ready. You will keep asking me the same question. I keep giving you the same answer. As I said right from the start, we need to see the, the arena in which we are sending our managers. Is that too much to ask? In October, we put forth yes. H.R. 660, which is House Resolution, which talked about the terms under which we would proceed further uh, to further proceed with the investigation so that people knew uh, what the uh, uh, battlefield would look like. We expect to see that. Mm, uh, pressed again on it, though. She provides more pushback until she doesn't. So are you willing to hold on to the articles indefinitely? I'm holding them indefinitely. I'll send them over when I'm ready. And that will probably be soon. <laughs> and that will probably be soon. This against uh, the Mitch McConnell signing on to Josh Howley's resolution, Senator from Missouri, we talked about earlier in the week, which would uh, give the House 25 days to send the articles of impeachment over. After that, a senator can offer a motion to dismiss with prejudice for failure by the House of Representatives to prosecute such articles with a simple majority vote. Apparently, McConnell also indicating to his caucus that uh, we're going to begin next week, articles or no articles. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor to National Review, author of the book Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election, and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. Morning. And so um, this seems to be uh, Nancy Pelosi finding out she doesn't have the leverage she thought she had. Yeah, and I don't know why they're in a hurry to disabuse her of that uh, reality. I think McConnell's first instinct all along has been right, which is if she's not in a hurry to send them over, we're not in a hurry to have them. And every day and every minute that she doesn't hand them over, this comes to seem like exactly what it has always been from the start, which is a political stunt. And we get to rehash the fact that uh, they told us again and again they had to act expeditiously. They couldn't litigate to see if they could get access to the main witnesses. Uh, We couldn't wait for the sovereign, the American people, to decide President Trump's fate in November. We had to be in a hot hurry to do this because Donald Trump was a clear and eminent threat to the election. And now, you know, once they got their impeachment articles voted, they said they weren't in such a hurry. So it's such naked politics that uh, the Republicans should be delighted to let it look that way. Can you imagine a scenario where it would make any sense to have witnesses in this proceeding to open the door to Bolton and Mulvaney and Biden and Biden and the whistleblower and so forth? Well, I I can. And the reason is because McConnell does not have, you know, right now in this battle with 
Pelosi over whether she's going to do the ministerial act of delivering the articles of impeachment. He's playing a strong hand. But once the proceedings actually get into the Senate, his margin for error is not great uh, or his margin for losing Republicans. And, you know, if three or four Republicans decide that they would like to hear witnesses, it will be hard to stop that from happening. And what I've always thought was that witnesses with a tripwire here, because I don't think you can have some and not have both sides have the ones that they want. So I don't see that you have a proceeding from the president's standpoint. I could see the president saying, look, if you want to have a bifurcated proceeding where the House managers come in and present the case, the Republicans and the president's counsel get to rebut it in a kind of a lawyerly argumentative way. And then the senators can vote on whether they think this is worthy of further proceedings and witnesses and the like, or want to dismiss it on the basis of what they've heard. That's fine. But from Trump's standpoint, if you're going to start having witnesses, like if you're going to give them Bolton and Mulvaney and all these people that the House didn't call in the impeachment stage, and you're going to present those people in the trial, then I think Trump is going to want his witnesses, too. And then it's off to the races. Well, right. And doesn't the scenario that you just described answer your previous question about why not uh, just sit back and wait for Pelosi to deliver the articles of impeachment rather than sort of precipitate the trial, as McConnell seems intent to do. It's because uh, and this was sort of Trey Gowdy's point, too, is because you don't want to go into the trial with unknowns. Uh, You don't want to go into the trial with new witnesses. So let's get this thing moving. Both sides can present their case. And if we've got the votes, let's vote our shares post haste. Yeah, the reason I disagree with that is because I think the longer she delays delivering it, the stronger the argument is to dismiss it on basically on the papers without hearing from Mm. witnesses. In other words, if you had a real impeachable offense, they wouldn't be able to wait to get to Senate trial. Right. Um, They'd want it. They'd want it at a Senate trial immediately. The reason that you're having this kind of gamesmanship is because they know that what they're delivering is a frivolous case. And I think every day that she delays, it looks more and more nakedly political, which makes it a stronger argument to dismiss it without witnesses. Uh, Mike Lee, senator from Utah, had an interesting op-ed in uh, Fox News website this week. You know, he's a strict constructionist, so he actually referred back to the Constitution that uh, Nancy Pelosi likes to refer to on again, off again, sort of in the abstract, what she wishes was were in the Constitution. But he talked about the Senate's responsibility per the Constitution when it comes to being the responsible party, the trier of fact. And he said, you know, this idea that we're just a jury, that's wrong. We're not just a jury. And this was actually a point that was litigated in the Clinton impeachment. Tom Harkin, Democrat from Iowa, objecting to the use of the term jury and then Chief Justice Rehnquist sustaining that objection, because, uh, as uh, Lee argues, we absolutely are more than just the trier of fact. We do have to take politics into consideration. It's actually part of yeah. our responsibility to make decisions in the best interest of the American people with respect to removing a president from office. And that necessarily is, in part, a political calculation. Yeah, Lee is right about that. The senators are not just the jury. The Senate, the Senate runs the proceeding. They're the judge, too. The only reason that the chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, is there presiding is really more of a ministerial and appearances thing than anything else. And what I mean by that is normally the vice president of the United States is the president of the Senate, but it would be unseemly to have the vice president preside over a proceeding where if the president gets removed, the vice president becomes the president. 
So the framers realizing that that was not a good conflict situation to stray into had to have a situation or have a construct where the chief justice at least appears to be presiding, but the chief justice's role is very ministerial. The Senate runs the proceeding to the extent there's law of the proceeding. The Senate decides what it is. Uh, the chief justice's authority is very minimal. Uh, and when we talk about politics here, we're not talking about um, politics in the kind of pejorative sense we usually throw the word around. Impeachment is about the stripping of political power, and that's the check that's been given to the Senate uh, in the Constitution. So they absolutely have an obligation uh, in this proceeding to take control over the ultimate question of whether the president's political power should be stripped. And that entails not only making the ultimate judgment, but making all of the rulings along the way that decide whether that happens or not. I've got another argument in terms of why McConnell should uh, expedite this. Uh, that is so that we can get done with this impeachment and then we can get on to the next one, because I'm excited to see what the next articles of impeachment are going to be. Yeah, well, they <laughs> they are not shutting down their investigation. That's true. And, um, you know, be interesting to see if they have the audacity to throw more articles at the Senate while the first uh, proceeding is still underway. But, you know, look, Dan, that, that'll just underscore what a farce this is. And again, I, I've been saying for a long time now, impeachment has an eye test. You know, we, we grapple with the idea of the um, the abstract legal definition of what a high crime and misdemeanor is. But the simple fact of the matter, and the framers brilliantly uh, made this construct, if you don't have misconduct that's so egregious that it moves the public such that there's political pressure on two-thirds of the Senate, a supermajority, to transcend their political and ideological ties and vote to remove the president. You don't have an impeachable offense. And I, th and I still think that, let's say you had a situation where Mueller had actually proved that Trump was in cahoots with Putin. If that had been proved, it wouldn't matter where in the election cycle, where in the electoral calendar you were. If that fact had been proved, the American people would demand that the president be removed from office, and that would happen instantly. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, if you really had an impeachable offense here, there would be no gamesmanship about getting the, the proceeding rolling in the Senate and, and the House transmitting those articles. They'd be anxious to do it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you can't even get two-thirds of the senator's constituents interested, much less applying pressure. Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, contributing editor at National Review, the book, Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks as always for joining us and providing your insights. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, aviation. You know, one of the curious things about this uh, downed commercial airliner uh, in, uh, in in Tehran uh, on the night that uh, Iran launched missile strikes against U.S. positions in Iraq. Hours before that liner, that plane was shot down by the Iranians, we believe, highly likely, the U.S. had issued a no-fly order over Iraq and Iran. Well, let's uh, start there with Robert Mark, our friend, who's a senior editor at Flying Magazine and publisher of Jet Wine. That's W-H-I-N-E, jetwine.com. 
Robert, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for inviting me. What, what about that matter of U.S. issues a no-fly uh, or makes uh, Iran and Iraq uh, issues a no-fly alert, and and yet that uh, plane takes off? Or should commercial airliners have been flying that night, uh, regardless of the mistake or the purposeful nature of taking down that plane by the Iranians? Well, the the, the no-fly uh, was really only for U.S registered aircraft oh, i understand they, but i mean is, isn't that a signal i mean doesn't that wouldn't that concern you if you're whoever you oh, are yeah yeah oh yeah absolutely and you know i i've been asked that before and i said i find it so hard to believe that the crew was not aware of what was going on outside the airplane before they took off and that's the captain's responsibility to say no 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 we're not we're not going however we don't know the circumstances under which the Ukrainian airlines operate. We have tons and tons of young pilots flying all over the world these days. You know, it's easy for an old guy like me to say, "No, no, I'm not, I'm not going, and I'm, not, I'm not taking all these people with me." But somebody that might be, you know, early 30s and it's their first flying job uh, for a big airline, they might say, "Well, the boss said we got to go. I guess we got to go." Because I cannot imagine any other circumstances that would put that airplane into the air. You'd have to be completely daft to to not realize that they were shooting missiles out there just not long before and to say, this is not safe. I understand the pilot was rather experienced. The captain was rather experienced. It wasn't a young it wasn't a young pilot feeling pressure for his his big, you know, to his, his first big job with a with a major carrier. Is that true? Well, yeah, uh, yeah, and I should have I should have added that part of the end. I was going to say if if it had been in ex- uh, in a, a new pilot, you could have understood maybe why they did that. But but an experienced captain, that just yeah, that's just beyond me. I, I just cannot understand that. Well, here, so, now, so now let's go back to what happened. So there's some video footage you've probably seen where the plane is clearly on fire. And then it uh, it's it's descending and it it dis, it uh, disappears behind a mountain range and explodes. But there's a report by uh, witnesses that the pilot was able to steer the plane toward a soccer field and away from a residential area. Uh, I mean that could that may be um, you know sort of a Rashomon effect issue. Eyewitnesses making determinations about what the pilot was doing. But but if that is true, does that tell you anything about? The prospect, does that increase the prospect? It could have been some sort of mechanical failure where he still had some control over the plane? Well, I did see that report that there was a turn. We have to realize this all happened almost literally Fast. in a flash. Yeah. But, of course, the, the, the missile, if it was indeed a missile, is not designed to uh, strike the aircraft itself. It's designed to to explode within the close proximity of the airplane and basically send shrapnel through the airplane that destroys the thing. So they may have had a second or two, but again, the the whole flight only didn't even last two minutes, I believe. But, you know, one thing on the pilot side, though, we we don't know for certain that that the pilot did not have those concerns and, and get some sort of assurance from the airline or the government that, no, don't worry, it's done, it's safe, it, you know, it's all over, you can fly now. Uh, that, that may indeed have been the case. It, it's hard to understand how any, uh, you know, military batteries, especially right near Tehran's main airport, uh, would, would lock onto a civil airliner and, and, and make that kind of a mistake. I mean, it, there wasn't like Iran was taking any retaliatory or responsive fire, 
right? I mean, so so what would they? No, that's th- true. What what would they think that was? How how could they see that as a threat in that context? And he, as you say, taking off from Tehran Airport and you know being in the air for two minutes. This whole like oh it was an accident thing. I, I don't know that that is. That is such a wild error in judgment. It's hard to believe it was an accident. Well, I know. I guess. I guess I'm being a bit altruistic. Yeah. And, as a pilot and responsible for, you know, lives, but I, I just can't believe that anybody would have done that on purpose. You know, there there is history that the U.S. Navy shot down a, an Iranian airliner many years ago by mistake. It does happen, but intentionally. I cannot imagine what anybody would hope to gain from this if they did it on purpose. I just I just can't believe that. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you've got uh, all kinds of Democrats and press flags blaming President Trump for the downing of that plane. So maybe the uh, Iranians have a better handle on our political culture than we do. I, I wanted to get I wanted to get your take on something else. I don't want to have to drag you into the, the depths of politics here. Um, <laughs> Boeing. I mean, this was a Boeing airliner that was shot down. And, and obviously it's this is a completely separate and distinct issue. But there is an issue with Boeing and it's internal documents that were released yesterday, about 150 pages worth, that show a lot of Boeing employees. There's uh, emails. Yeah, this airplane is designed by clowns who are in turn supervised by monkeys. Another uh, mentioning unnamed, quote unquote, morons who decided to put certain kinds of instrument uh, displays on the MAX. One employee adding that India's top aviation regulator is apparently even stupider, quote unquote. Uh, So... I mean, it, it, it raises all sorts of concerns, both internally with respect to Boeing and with respect to aviation regulators the world over. Well, I mean, Boeing has certainly in the last year become the, the official U.S. punching bag. I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you that they haven't done some pretty stupid things. But, uh, you know, in the rush to get that airplane out there uh, quickly uh, to compete with the Airbus, I mean, it's cost Boeing its its reputation, a reputation that took them a hundred years to create. Um, and there's no doubt that that people tried to tell people at Boeing if there were problems, and they just simply did not listen because they were being driven by money, not by engineering and, and safety. And and as you said, the FAA had a hand in this as well. And part of that goes to something that I think I heard mentioned earlier about the equipment on the airplanes. The uh, uh, the uh, U.S. built aircraft all had dual sensors to warn the pilots that there was a disagreement between this angle of attack indicator that made the MCAS go off. Well, a lot of the other airplanes, like the Ethiopian Lion Air ones, only had one. Hmm. And and I in my life I've never heard anybody build an airplane with one flight instrument in it. There's always been a backup hmm. uh, and redundancy for a reason because things can go wrong and you need a backup i i just they added it as an option and and that's where i think they really lost me uh because boeing was a strong company for years they still built good airplanes but whoever came up with that idea was what did you say a monkey or a clown i don't remember one of the two Probably both. Uh, Robert Mark, senior editor at Flying Magazine, publisher of Jetwine. That's W-H-I-N-E, jetwine.com. Robert, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, last year, the state of Maine became the eighth state to legalize assisted suicide. The eighth state to legalize assisted suicide. We uh, talked earlier in this week on my show with uh, Dr. Leonard Sachs about the incidence of the, the trend of increasing suicide among individuals 10 to 24 young people why that is, trying to figure out root causes. So on the one hand, we're uh, concerned as a country about uh, the trend of increasing suicide, significant increases in suicides over the last decade among young people. On the other hand, we're sending a message at the state level throughout the country that um, the way to eliminate suffering is to eliminate the sufferer. And oh, by the way, you're worth more dead than alive. Yeah. Uh, this started in Western Europe and is taking hold in America. It's called the Death with Dignity Movement. And there's been nobody more pronounced on the topic than Wesley Smith, who's been writing about it for the better part of three decades. Canada uh, just uh, recently discussed the organ donations. Uh, Wesley Smith writing that uh, when he first, uh, when he published his first anti-euthanasia column some almost three decades ago, he warned that societal society's acceptance of assisted suicide would eventually include organ harvesting. He was called an alarmist and a fear monger. And yet in Canada, there following the same model of the Western European countries like Belgium and the Netherlands, not only allowing organ harvesting to be conjoined with euthanasia, but medically assisted death is being boosted as a, quote, boon to organ donation. This uh, excerpt from a story in the Ottawa Citizen. Ontarians who uh, opt for medically assisted deaths are increasingly saving or improving other people's lives by also including organ and tissue donation as part of their final wishes. In the first 11 months of 2019, those patients so described in the province accounted for 18 organ and 95 tissue donors, a 14% increase over 2008 and 109% increase in over 2017. Hooray! Many of these, uh, Wesley Smith now writing, many of these killed organ donors will not have been imminently dying. They will also generally not have been provided suicide prevention services as the suicidal ill and disabled who ask for euthanasia are increasingly abandoned to this death with dignity mindset. It doesn't even have to be the patient's idea. The Trillium Gift of Life Network, which is Ontario's organ donation organization, solicits, actively solicits the organs of those soon to be killed by doctors. Canada decriminalized medically assisted death in 2016. And Ontario, through Trillium, immediately moved to the forefront of organ and tissue donation, becoming the first jurisdiction in the world to proactively reach out to those who had been approved for assisted death to discuss donation. 
when death is imminent, Trillium must by law be notified. This is from that same article in the Ottawa Citizen. So you understand what's happening? Uh, you are depressed or disabled uh, or uh, ill in a physical way. Cancer, say, for example. And you say, I want to kill myself. And rather than having individuals rally around you with services to address your suicidal fatalism, they are rallying, rushing to you to make plans for your death, not trying to walk you back from the ledge, encouraging you to jump because they got bigger, better plans for your body parts. Hmm. Uh, The Netherlands, I mean, just how pronounced uh, this is. Uh, in 2018, in, in, in the Netherlands, 6,126 deaths caused by euthanasia or assisted suicide. 67 patients were killed by psychiat- uh, psychiatrists, other doctors for mental illness. Three children between the ages of 12 and 17 were killed. 205 cases of homicide by doctors as a supposed treatment for two or more elderly disorders, quote unquote, such as hearing loss, balance issues, cognitive decline. As Smith writes, once euthanasia consciousness grabs a culture by the throat, it never stops squeezing. When we come back, I want to pick up this story and talk about uh, a couple of more specific cases and also address the larger philosophical issue of the importance of suffering. This is the Dan Prop Show. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide, the death with dignity movement, the death with dignity movement is just the marketing of assisted suicide. I've mentioned uh, some examples in Canada focusing on organ donation, celebrating people who have decided to take their own lives and making plans for their body parts. Also, the incidents in the Netherlands where it is uh, more frequent than just about anywhere else in the world. A Dutch teenager, the story from uh, the summer last uh, summer of 2019 last year, Dutch teenager raped by two men when she was 14 will never live to adulthood or overcome the severe, severe depression. The attack caused instead per the Washington post reporting in what she termed a sad last post on Instagram. Noah Pothoven, 17 years old wrote Saturday that she would be dead within 10 days, but it had been so long. She added since she had really been alive. Uh, The Guardian reporting on the same young lady and her decision to kill herself. A hospital bed was set up in her parents' home. And last week, she refused all food and fluids. Her parents and doctors reportedly agreed not to force feed her. Dutch medical guidelines stipulate that if a patient withholds their consent, quote, care providers may not provide treatment, nursing or care. 17-year-old girl. Wesley Smith on the case again, asking 
the pertinent question. Does the exact cause of the girl's death really matter? A teenager with a terrible psychiatric condition brought on by an attack she suffered was allowed to make herself dead instead of receiving continued and robust treatment efforts. Of course, people have survived all sorts of traumas and horrors that were done to them. Smith goes on to say this is where all assisted suicide legalization laws eventually lead. This is where they all lead. Stories like Noah Pothoven. Once a society accepts killing as an acceptable way to eliminate human suffering, there is no limit to the categories of suffering that will eventually justify eliminating the sufferer. And I mentioned before the break in the Netherlands, elderly people with, quote unquote, elderly disorders like hearing loss. When you think of uh, assisted suicide in the way that it's marketed, people in excruciating pain, people with no chance of recovery, people who have lost brain function. Are you thinking about people killing themselves with a doctor's help under the color of law because they have bad hearing? Probably not. But that's what's happening. You're thinking about a 17 year old girl uh, who uh, suffered uh, trauma, was the victim of a crime when she was 14 being allowed to kill herself with the support of her parents and a doctor because she won't eat. She's so depressed still at what happened to her three years later. If your daughter, if that had happened to your daughter, of course I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but would you be doing everything you could enlisting the medical community and anybody else, her peers to try to bring her back, to try to help her cope and get on with her life. She had a lot of life to live or would you just concede the point? That's it. This is what she wants. And what about this matter of suffering, this very utilitarian argument that is increasingly popular in our secular society? Suffering is bad. Well, we know those of us who are not part of the secular society, or at least are also people of faith, uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that what scripture tells us? But even if you're not faithful, you understand that suffering has benefits, right? The, the biblical truths about suffering are universal truths. First of all, it's multifaceted, right? Suffering can make us stronger. And in a broken world with fallen men and women, there's going to be suffering. So how you cope is important. Also, suffering happens in community. Church can be a refuge for those suffering, but so can your social circle, your family, your friends, your colleagues, coworkers, co parishioners, co-volunteers. Suffering equips us for ministry, right? When you've passed your own trials and tribulations, you can say to another, I've been there. You can overcome this the way that I did. Let me share a story with you. And, uh, you know, I won't get into other aspects of the benefits of suffering that are more religious in nature, but they certainly exist. And what does our secular media do? Does it uh, suggest at least consideration of some of these benefits? No. You may remember a recent case. And it's, again, these are all heartbreaking cases, but you can't let public policy be driven completely by sentimentality. As Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor famously observed, sentimentality leads to the gas chamber or to the assisted suicide dungeon. Remember Brittany Maynard? She was uh, a young woman who had uh, contracted terminal brain cancer covered by People magazine. In point of fact, uh, she uh, 
was was declared by People Magazine to be a hero in a cover story about her plight. She uh, chose uh, the nonprofit Compassion and Choices, which is a assisted suicide advocacy organization, and uh, she was fighting to expand death with for, with dignity laws nationwide. That was how she chose to spend her final days. And this was lauded by the press corps. CNN named her an extraordinary person of 2014. The message is clear. Wesley Smith on the case again. Dying naturally is for chumps. Living with significant limitations is undignified. Assisted suicide is courageous. Another young woman named Lauren Hill, who died naturally of the same cancer that caused Brittany Maynard to pursue and promote suicide. Hill struggled to continue playing basketball, college basketball at that level at the time, uh, and raise money for cancer research. Despite promoting a far more positive life with dignity message than Maynard did, Hill received an obit in People of about 200 words. People devoted 1,200 words to Maynard, which is a lot for that magazine, to Brittany Maynard in the wake of her suicide and uh, glamorized suicide. I mean, a lot of newspaper outlets don't print uh, stories about suicide, somebody who's committed suicide, they don't include that in the obituary because they understand, we understand through research, that there's a social contagion to it. Not People Magazine, not when it comes to the Death with Dignity movement. Cele- I mean, I'm, it's terrible what happened to Brittany Maynard as anybody with such an affliction. So I'm not indicting her, talking about what virtues we want to extol. Because what a society extols, it begets. And right now in America, between abortion and the death with dignity movement, we're extolling death. We're extolling the absence of suffering. We're extolling a false utopia. And we're begetting it with all its falsities. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, this is unusual. AOC, social one of the uh, the lead of the Socialist Spice Girls, in trouble with PETA. AOC, there, uh, she uh, recently tweeted out that she got a new pup. So what's the problem? PETA should be happy. Well, the uh, French bulldog that uh, AOC obtained uh, is a is one that she got from a breeder. So Peter sent a letter. We couldn't believe our eyes because you are a role model for how to live, brother. So we understand that you just didn't realize what you were doing in this case. Well, that's sort of uh, patronizing to uh, the leading light of the left, isn't it? You couldn't have. You just didn't realize what you were doing in this case. You couldn't have, Peter said in their letter. With millions of homeless dogs out there, you apparently chose to buy a purebred puppy instead of adopting one from an animal shelter. Right this minute on PetFinder alone, there are more than 110,000 dogs, including French bulldogs, who need homes. Oh, boy. I hate to see uh, the loony left be in conflict with one another. They gave her a chance, though. Gave her an out. PETA President Ingrid Newkirk, who is out of her freaking mind. This is the uh, woman behind such ad campaigns as 
holocaust on your plate about eating chicken who tried to well did try to file a suit to free orca whales from SeaWorld, claiming they were slaves under the 13th and 14th Amendments, the United States Constitution. Okay, so you get the to get the, uh, the gist of it. AOC had a chance to set a compassion, responsible example in the face of homeless, the homeless animal crisis, but instead she inadvertently contributed to the problem. Now, I'm a dog owner, and I did get mine at a shelter, so I'm a good person. Not that I'd ever want to be characterized such as PETA. Oof. Talk about being damned with faint praise. But the larger issue not is, is, is not just uh, even breeder or shelter, it's the uh, choice of breed. Consider the bulldog, a grotesque monstrosity born of relentless inbreeding, riddled with sinusitis, crippled by joint pain, chronically flatulent. A kindly pet or humanity's cruelest mistake? All right, take it away. I got to agree with Gavin Belson on that one. So, yeah, it's the breed that's the problem for me. Should have gone with the Arubian Kanuku. Yes, the Arubian Kanuku, which is the breed of my brilliant dog, Hayek. Have a great weekend, everybody. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.